You say, come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And we thank you that Jesus paid it all. We wouldn't have much to sing about if the message was Jesus paid some. So thank you for paying it all. And would you give us the grace today to believe that we are completely forgiven so that we can live forgiven, so that we can forgive others. Cover us in grace today, Lord, so that we become gracious, grace-filled, grace-giving community. And we ask You because You're the only one who can transform us into the likeness of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has our full allegiance. In His name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Last Sunday I told you that Paul wrote, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And that curious phrase, better by far. Paul said, for your sake, I'd rather, I'd rather stay around. It would be good for you if I stay around, but for my sake, it would be better by far if I were to go and be with the Father. This um, became real to us, um, painfully real this week in the loss of one of our leaders. Uh, Jim Gwynn went to be with the Lord unexpectedly to us. Shockingly, I think a lot of us are still reeling from that. I remember when I was a, a young pastor in college, I would go up to the third floor of Moody Library and and I would read their commentaries on the passage that I was to preach that weekend. And I loved to read Alexander McLaren, but I always read him last because his outline was so good that if I hadn't written my sermon, I would be tempted to use his outline. And I didn't want to do that. But I remember one time reading up there his story about when he was 16 years old and he found a job in Glasgow, Scotland, and so he he decided to, to walk to work, and on the way to work was a pretty scary ravine. Think um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Hound of the Baskervilles, The Moors. And he, he didn't like to walk through it in the daytime, much less at night, but his father said to him as he was leaving for his first week of work, he was going to be gone Monday through Friday, and his dad said, so when you finish work on Friday night, you come straight home. And his first thought was, I'd have to walk through that ravine in the darkness. But he said, okay. And on Friday evening, he he dreaded it, but he began to walk that way and it was dark. And when he got to the edge of that ravine, he thought, I can't do it. I cannot walk through this ravine. And as he was standing there pondering what he was going to do next, he heard the sound of footsteps. And he was surprised and glad to see the face of his father emerge from the ravine and to hear his father's voice say, I couldn't wait to see you, so I came to get you. And he said as he and his father walked through that ravine, he did not fear anything in this world. We who love Jim Gwynn 
for our sake, would have liked for him to have been here a lot longer. For his sake, to be with the Father is, is better by far. And because for Jim Gwynn to live was Christ, to die really was gain. Paul continues that thought in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to 30. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them. You might turn on your phone and, uh, and read the verses there, but we'll put them up on the screen if, if that's easier for you. Let's hear the word of the Lord together today. We're just studying Philippians verse by verse. In fact, McLaren kind of taught me exposition as I read what he did when I was a teenager, and it's good just to open God's word We're not trying to get through Philippians, but we are praying that God will get through to us as we read Philippians. Let's stand together and hear the word of the Lord. Good citizens of God's kingdom, Philippians 1, verse 27, hear the word of the Lord. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, then Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one Spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the Gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Paul preached the Gospel in Philippi and it landed him in jail. You can imagine the way Lydia and the other believers felt. He had been staying in their living room and suddenly he's in shackles in a dungeon and they are praying for him and God delivers him by earthquake and he is set free. But they never forget that experience and the closeness that is born in the lives of people as we walk together through suffering is unlike anything else in the world. I've often thought that when you go on a mission trip, like Eddie's about to lead 30-something of our folks on to Brazil, you get close when you go on a mission trip together. But I tell you what brings you the closest. When you walk through the darkest valley together, you discover that the same strength that sustains your brother or sister also sustains you. And being sustained together by grace is very powerful. So Paul had a strong bond with this church. He loved them greatly and he hoped for the best for them. And he knew what they were experiencing because he was a Roman citizen and he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. But his primary allegiance was no longer to Rome or to Judaism, but his primary uh, allegiance was to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the day he decided to stop persecuting the Christians and to say that Jesus Christ was Lord was a transforming moment in his life that sometimes led him through very painful suffering. And now he hears that in Philippi, these Christians 
who will not burn the pinch of incense and say Caesar is Lord because they believe that Jesus Christ is Lord are about to begin to experience the same kind of suffering that they saw him experience and now they know he's in jail again. So he wants to encourage them by reminding them in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Our primary allegiance is to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And because our citizenship is in heaven, even though we live in a Roman colony in Philippi, Philippi was not just a city, it was a Roman colony, which meant it was treated as though it were Roman soil, even though it was in Macedonia, in northern Greece. To live there was to have all the the rights of the citizens of Rome. And so Paul helps them to understand, Gordon Fee puts it succinctly, as you live in the Roman colony of Philippi, live as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. The word he uses, which in the King James Version was let your conversation be, I think the ESV says conduct yourselves in this passage That word is literally the verb form of the word citizen. We don't have an English equivalent. It would be like John Dixon says, citizenize yourselves in a way worthy of the gospel. That helps us to see that what Paul is really saying to them and to us is since your primary allegiance is to Jesus Christ and he has done so much for you, live your whole life on earth with a primary allegiance to Jesus which leads you to be citizens worthy of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So what are the character traits of good citizens? We know to be a good citizen in the United States, there are some things that are expected of us if we're going to have life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're, we're supposed to vote and we're supposed to declare allegiance to our country. What does it mean to be a good citizen of God's kingdom? He identifies some traits here. Things like a, a deep commitment to unity, living with courage in the face of opposition, suffering faithfully, So having endurance in the midst of the struggle of life. We live in a world where we have a citizenship on earth, but but Paul says your main commitment is to Christ. And if your commitment is to Christ in gospel-formed community, how will you live? And as we think about these character traits of unity and courage and endurance, I would just point out to you that because we don't fully commit to our Lord Jesus Christ and give our primary allegiance to Him, it may well be that we never suffer the way that the Philippians did. On the other hand, I'm convinced we will never know the joy and the glory they knew in the midst of their suffering unless and until we do. In gospel-formed community, we stand firm in unity, in gospel form community. I couldn't help but notice as I studied this week that the main word in the book of, of the Philippians, the letter to the Philippians, I've always thought it was joy, but it's really Jesus, to be clear. But in this first chapter, the primary word, not once or twice, but six times, he uses the word gospel. Remember, the gospel is the announcement that Jesus Christ is Lord, and those who give their primary allegiance to him enter his kingdom and become citizens of that kingdom. And Paul says, I want you 
to share in the unity of community. We already know that there are those who are arguing in the, in the body, Euodia and Syntyche, these two ladies who are leaders. He uses the same word when he says strive together, contend together for the faith of the gospel. When he says that in verse 28, the only other time Paul ever uses that word is in chapter 4, verse 3 to also talk about Euodia and Syntyche. And what he says is they strove together, they contended together with me for the gospel. They fought side by side with me on this mission trip that we call the Christian life. They fought side by side with me, but now they're fighting each other. And this is troubling to Paul and he is calling for reconciliation. Bill Hybels says the real identifier of community of true Christian community is not the absence of conflict we will periodically disagree with each other it's actually the presence of a reconciling spirit and to the extent that we don't reconcile with each other within our own families within our own church within our own community to the extent that Christians don't live with that kind of unity it's pretty hard for us to convince the world that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself when we look and live so unreconciled with each other. We uh, have two puppies in our family. It's a long story. I don't have time to tell you the whole thing, but we have Zena, the warrior princess dog, and she really is a, a warrior princess. She, she guards the back fence against all intruders and predators, chihuahuas and fierce dogs like that who happen to walk by the boundary of her property, Xena the warrior princess dog. On the other hand, we have Paisley, the the Labrador, who, um, you know, in the world where there are three kinds of of people, those who, who make things happen, those who watch things happen, and those who say, what just happened? Paisley's the third. She, she doesn't know what's happened, right? She doesn't understand. But she's learning from Zena, and she wants for all the world, looking up to her big sister, Zena, she wants to be Paisley, the warrior princess Labrador. Unfortunately, she's not much of a warrior. In fact, if Zena's not in the backyard, she makes friends with everybody who walks by. But put them out there together, and when Zena goes to the attack and begins to run that fence line, she's worn all the grass out underneath our trees there, Paisley knows it's time to fight. And so she goes and runs with Zena. And she can run a little faster than Zena. And they run up and down that fence barking at the dogs going by. But if Paisley makes the mistake of getting too close to the fence, well, then Zena bites her. It makes no sense at all. They're on the same team. But Zena is so angry at the dogs on the other side of the fence that she will bite her sister on this side of the fence if she gets too close. Have you ever seen that happen? I don't mean with dogs. Have you ever seen people who are just so angry that you're not as angry as they are and if you think you are, they're angry at you? It's, it's your reptile brain that makes you think that. It's the amygdala. Even, even lizards have that part of the brain, fight or flight. But it's unworthy of human beings created in the image of God. And it is certainly unworthy of those who have been recreated and are being transformed in the image of Jesus Christ to live our lives angry at others. Instead, we are called to live in community with each other. I read uh, Sam Walter Foss's poem again this morning. I was reminded, let me live in a house by the side of the road where the human race goes by, some that are good, some that are bad, as good or as bad as I, but I will not sit in the scoffer's seat nor hurl the cynic's ban. Let me live in a house by the side of the road and be a friend to man. God has called us to live 
in community with, with each other. Jane Austen wrote about this in, in one of her books describing it. She said, let us not desert each other. Charles Haddon Spurgeon talked about the communion of a grove of trees and said, communion is strength, solitude is weakness alone. The free old beach yields to the blast and lies prone on the meadow. But in the forest, supporting each other, the trees laugh at the hurricane. The sheep of Jesus flock together. Or Tenzig Norgay, who saved the life of Sir Edmund Hillary twice on that first climb of Mount Everest, when asked about his support for Sir Edmund Hillary, said, We mountain climbers help each other. We Christians too. We help each other on this journey and we we stand firm in unity. The word sunathleo, we're athletes together. We're like the offensive line trying to protect the quarterback. We stand firm together. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's not to fight with each other. It's not even just to stand against something, but he says it's standing for the gospel. We strive for the good news that Jesus Christ is king. This means that Christians are not primarily against something. We might get that confused sometimes. I was driving to the airport the other day and I saw a bumper sticker on the back of a pickup and it It said, I am not a liberal. I thought, well, that's interesting. He's told me what he's not. What what kind of liberal is he not? Is he not a theological liberal? Is Is he not a political liberal? What kind of liberal is he not? And what difference does it really make what you're not? Who are you? What are you for? And to be a Christian is not just to be against immorality in the world. To be a Christian is to be for something. Better to be for someone. And that someone is the Lord Jesus Christ who has our exclusive allegiance. To be worthy citizens of the kingdom of God. We stand firm in unity. To be worthy citizens of God's kingdom. We strive fearlessly against adversity, should I say, the adversary. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's why we put on the full armor. We strive, sunoth leo, we, we stand together, we strive fearlessly and Paul says we are we are not afraid why are are we not afraid well Paul explains that that in Acts chapter 18 verses 9 and 10 when he found himself in Corinth and he was beginning to experience opposition the Lord himself came to Paul and said don't be afraid keep on speaking don't be silent why for I am with you That's always God's promise. It's the primary promise in Scripture. I am with you. It means whatever you face this week, whatever you struggle against, whoever comes against you, whatever comes against you, you can be assured of this as a follower of Jesus. Not only are you for Him, but He is for you and He is with you. And if God is for us, who can be against us? So we stand in that. Like John Knox, we fear God so much that we don't fear any human being. And Paul says when we take that stand, verse 28 It gives two signs, two crystal clear signs. The one to those who would oppose Christ in our world. There are those who oppose Christ and the message is you will lose. Those who oppose Christ 
will lose. This is hard for us maybe to hear this, the word apolia, destruction. That's the destiny of those. But, but hell wasn't made for people. It was made for the devil and his angels. If people want to go there, God's not going to keep them out. But it's not because God wants anybody to go there. But those who oppose Christ will lose. I think of, of Martin Luther's majestic hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And in that third stanza, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word, capital W. The word will fell him. In an earlier, in an earlier stanza, does to ask who that may be. Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. This is Jesus, the supreme king of the universe, the Lord of all who wins the battle. And he says, those who oppose Christ will lose. But here's the good news. Those who follow Christ will be saved. So he says, for us, it's not a sign of destruction, but of salvation, not apolia, but soteria. We will be saved. This is God's promise. And that by God, somebody summarized the message of the book of Revelation saying we win in the end. Well, we do. And that's what it says. And it's really Revelation, not so much just a map of the future as some would see it. It's a, it's a letter to those who are experiencing suffering saying, keep on being faithful because God is with you and you will win in the end. That's the message that John and Jesus wanted to get to those first century believers. And it's still an encouragement to us today. This good news that we win in the end, that we will be saved. We serve the God who saves. We have a, a Bible study with our interns, and this week we were studying Isaiah. And margin of my Bible, I have the word Spurgeon written there. It's the passage, look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. And Spurgeon says a snowstorm kept him from going to his regular church, so he went into a little Methodist chapel down a lane, and he got into that chapel, and the preacher couldn't make it because of the snowstorm, so there was a lay preacher who stood up, and all he had was the text, look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved, and he was preaching it point by point, and finally in a room of 12 to 15 people, he looked right at Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a young man, and said to him, young man, you look miserable, but if you will look to Jesus... You will be saved. And that's when Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great, the great prince of preachers, became a Christian through the simple gospel message that God saves those who look to Him. And we strive fearlessly. And, and the more fearless we are, the more it shows to the world that it really is true. The Christ who was crucified is also the Christ who was raised from the dead. And He is seated at the right hand of God where He ever lives to intercede for us. And He is Lord of all. Declare your allegiance to Him and you will be saved. In gospel form community, we stand firm in unity in gospel form community, we strive fearlessly against adversity. In gospel formed community, we suffer faithfully until 
God gives us the victory. So Paul says to them in verses 29 and 30, you're going to experience suffering in this life. He says, for it has been granted to you. He says, suffering is a gift. God's giving you this gift. It's a new perspective on suffering. That God's, literally, God has graced you. That's the word. The word is grace. God has given you the grace. So suffering is a gift. It's a gift we don't want. We don't want the gift of suffering. But he says, God gives it to you as a gift. And so you receive it. He says, you, you saw me go through this agony. That's the word, the agon, the struggle I had and I'm still in. And you're going to go through that struggle as well. You have heard it said by preachers of old on television, if you accept Jesus as your Savior, you will never have another problem in your life. But I say to you, If you become a follower of Christ, you will be conformed to His image. And one of the ways God will work in your life is through the inevitable suffering of life. The good news, though, is that that suffering can never be meaningless. It's not only a new perspective on suffering, but there's a new purpose in it. He says, when you suffer for Christ on His behalf, you suffer with Him, you suffer for Him. The Scripture is filled with this perspective. So, for instance, in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, when they told those early Christians, Peter and John, just don't say the name of Jesus and we'll let you live. Just stop talking about Jesus. And then they, they flog them And they order them not to speak in the name of Jesus and they let them go. And it says in verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And then what did they do in verse 42? They just kept talking about Jesus. Because they were willing to suffer for him, they experienced the joy of knowing that God was with them in the midst of that suffering. And the New Testament is full of the connection of Christ's suffering with ours. Colossians 1.24, right before Christ in you, the hope of glory. He, he says, I rejoice in what I suffered for you. And I, I made up in my body for the sufferings of Christ that are continuing. It's as if Christ's body continues to suffer and we're part of that body, Paul says. In Romans chapter 8, verse 17, he says when we, we suffer with Him, we share in His sufferings, we also share in His glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 5, when we suffer, God Himself will comfort us. In 2 Timothy 2.12, if we suffer with Him, we will also reign with Him. That's a, a higher purpose in suffering. It's not that you won't suffer if you become a Christian. It's that... Your suffering with Christ, for Christ, can never be meaningless. And then there's this new promise that comes with suffering. It's there in Paul's writing later in the next uh, two chapters over in in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, where he says, I want to know the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings. Paul says, let me know the resurrection first and then I can handle the suffering. If I know, I, I, don't, know, you know, I don't have to know the why, but I can handle any what if I know the who. The one for whom I am suffering. And so, to know the power of the resurrection, here's the promise for those who suffer in this life that our suffering is not in vain. And that Christ is with us. And on the other side, we serve a Savior who knows His way out of the grave. Who's already overcome the grave. And He offers that promise to us. The promise of the resurrection. Brene Brown, a a local professor at University of Houston. Brilliant, brilliant sociologist. 
says that when she went through something of a uh, breakdown, she read in all the books that people go back to church when they go through a hard time. So she decided to go back to church. She said, that's what everybody does. She said, I thought when I got to the church that it would be sort of like an epidural, you know, that it would take away the pain. But she said going back to church was not an epidural. It didn't take away the pain. It was more like, she said, like a midwife who kept saying, push, it's supposed to hurt. This is what the community of Christ is about. We suffer faithfully like our Savior Jesus Christ because we know the end of the story. I was on my way to Dallas to see my mom and my dad together, which it's a long story, but they don't get together very often. But my dad was coming down to see my mom. He called me on the phone and he said, listen, son, if anybody goes to heaven, your mom's going to go to heaven. And I said, I, I know, dad. And so he said, I'm coming down to see her. And I said, I want a front row seat. And so I walk in the room with my dad and watch my dad love my mom and my mom love my dad. And, and it's just, I can't even describe how beautiful it is. But in the midst of this pain and suffering on the way up, I get the call about our brother Jim Gwynn. Last sermon he heard me preach was to live as Christ, to die as gain. And I walked straight out of here in the 845 service and the first hand that I shook was Jim Gwynn's hand. Because most often, most every Sunday, his hand is the first hand that I shake when I get outside this room. He was always there faithfully serving the Lord. He was serving the Lord on our property that somebody has given us uh, out at Round Top. He was out there working for the church, for the Lord. He was always working for the Lord. He was with his son and then he became ill and he, his son took him to the hospital there in Brenham. He checked himself in, signed himself into the hospital. And his son told me yesterday when he walked into the examination room, he collapsed on the bed there and he never regained consciousness. The doctor said probably in that very moment, he was gone. And we're reeling from that, still trying to process that. And the best I can understand, look, for our sakes, for his family's sake, we would love, as Paul said, for your sake, it'd be better if I stay. But for his sake, to be with the Lord, better by far. And the only way I can make sense of it is that, that when he walked into that room and in that moment when he collapsed, it was like, it was like Alexander McLaren's story of coming to that ravine and then hearing footsteps and then seeing the face of his father and hearing his father's voice say to him, Son, I couldn't wait to see you. So I came to walk home with you. And I know, and I know when Jim Gwynn, when my mom, when you and I walk through that darkest valley someday, we will fear no evil because the Lord is with us as we stand firm, as we strive fearlessly, as we suffer faithfully. We have this promise. God is with us. God is for us. Who can be against us? Let's pray. God, we thank You for the grace that saved us. And we thank You for the grace that empowers us. 
when we suffer. And Lord, we know the answer to saving the world is to do what You did. To love them to death. Not to their death, but to our own. And that in the sacrifice that we offer You of our living bodies as a living sacrifice, others will see Your faithfulness to us. And they will believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I pray that somebody in the sound of my voice today would surrender to Your sovereignty and acknowledge that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. That from the ends of the earth, someone would look and see that Jesus Christ is Savior of all and believe. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.